This is not the media. This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. And on this week's abbreviated, truncated, one-hour live broadcast here on Chicago Sound Experiment, 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now and podcast in its entirety later at thisishell.com. This week, the global white nationalist movement is on the rise and liberalism is to blame. As we hear it, this is hell. Our equal opportunity haters will first take on those friggin' fascists, and then it's those lame liberals who caused the fascist problem in the first place. At least that's what this week's guests will argue. Our first guest this week is live from London. Writer, essayist, editor, poet, and broadcaster Eleanor Penny wrote the In These Times story, Steve Bannon's European Dream. Europe used to serve as a utopian vision for the left and a punching bag for the right. Now it's reversing. All these far-right uprisings we are seeing around the world, but especially here in the U.S. and in Europe, are part of a white nationalist project that is sweeping the globe. We'll be focusing on the rise of Europe's far-right and the debate that's taking place in Europe and the United States today over what Europeanness is. We'll learn the state of that debate and what it reveals about the current political environment that has fostered the rise of the far-right when we speak with Eleanor, who is a senior editor at Novara Media, and the online editor of Red Pepper Magazine. Eleanor hosts the New Statesman Politics podcast, The Sisterhood, and produces and hosts the poetry podcast, Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, which you can find at endoftheworldpodcast.com. Eleanor is a member of, I just had to add this in here, Eleanor is a member of Barbican Young Poets All Women Collective called Men Are Trash, and our conversation with Eleanor will seamlessly segue, apparently, supposedly, hopefully, into our second guest interview this week when we'll talk live from Brooklyn to the writer of politics, culture, sports, and technology, Aaron Timms, who posted the Baffler article, This Is Not a Blip, What's Wrong With What Liberals Say Is Wrong With the World. Really, don't worry about all the problems we face today, whether it's neo-Nazis or climate change or growing inequality. There's nothing to worry about because this is just a blip, just a moment, and everything will get back to normal any day now. At least that's what defenders of liberalism status quo want you and all of us to believe. The problem is that all these crises that liberalism is facing today have been around for a lot longer than a mere moment or just a blip. We've been dealing with them since the 2008 financial crisis, at, at the least, and going back much further to when uh, this whole financialized, deregulated economy mess started back in the 1980s under President Reagan and continued under President Clinton in the 90s. But if you want only incrementalized reactions that never address any larger problems with the system as a whole, the kind of responses liberalism always offers, then you'll want to convince the public that we're just in a moment. We're in a blip that's lasted anywhere from a decade to more than a generation. We'll discover how liberalism is at fault for the rise of the far right when we are joined by Aaron, who has written for the Sydney Morning Herald, Salon.com, The Daily Beast, The Guardian, The Outline, The Week, The Monthly, and The LA Review of Books. And you can find out more about Adam at Aaron Timms, that's with two M's, Aaron Timms, Dot .xyz that's his website aaron timms.xyz 
All that stuff, plus listener feedback. We want to thank listeners for sharing This Is Hell online, as well as thank those who supported This Is Hell in the past week. And there are a couple ways you can support This Is Hell. You can subscribe to our weekly one-hour podcast exclusively for our patrons, uh, Patreon patrons on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Go to patreon.com slash thisishell and sign up right now to get your weekly podcast only for subscribers. On this week's Patreon podcast, I gave the second part of my look into podcasting, broadcasting, how the media industry and their supporters and government killed radio and corporate conglomeration pissed on radio's graves. And we also shared an interview that was appropriate for our discussion of this market-controlled life. And that interview from our archives was with investigative journalist Gary Weiss, author of Ayn Rand Nation, The Hidden Struggle for America's Soul, which is a must-listen interview. And if you're interested in all the people you know who quote Ayn Rand and why they get her so wrong and why they quote her so regularly, you have to check out the book Ayn Rand Nation. And you can hear that interview with its author, Gary Weiss, by subscribing to our Patreon podcast exclusively for our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And you can only hear that if you are a subscriber. So sign up right now. Show your support for This Is Hell, as well as get an extra podcast every week at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly, and sadly, Noam Chomsky's gone insane. This is hell. There's a battle over what Europeanness is, and that fight is having reverberations around the world as it ripples outward in a wave of global white nationalism. Here to get us caught up on the debate and what it means for everyone on the planet, not just Europe, live from London, writer, essayist, editor, poet, and broadcaster Eleanor Penny wrote the In These Times story, Steve Bannon's European Dream. Europe used to serve as a utopian vision for the left and a punching bag for the right. Now it's reversing. Welcome to This Is Hell, Eleanor. Hi there, Chuck. It's really great to be on. Eleanor is a senior editor at Novara Media and the online editor of Red Pepper Magazine. You can follow Eleanor on Twitter at Eleanor K. Penny. But most importantly, she hosts the New Statesman Politics podcast, The uh, Sisterhood, and she produces and hosts poetry podcast Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, which you can find at endoftheworldpodcast.com. Dot com. So you write, two years and a hundred political lifetimes ago, a UK prime minister offered a spurious referendum on EU membership to quell backbenchers and far-righters, causing trouble in the ranks. It was a disastrous game of electoral Russian roulette. And considering all of the media narrative here in the United States around anything to do with Russia, I wanted to start right there. Russian roulette. What Was, the, was this more political <laughs> suicide than anything caused by outside influences like, well, Russia? Because part of the debate, you know, here in the United States with the triumph of the right in getting Donald Trump and Trump in the White House is that it is illegitimate in some way. And I'm curious about the legitimacy that people in the UK believe Brexit has. Is, is, there, is the rise of the far right, is it illegitimate? So I think there are a couple of things to unpack here, because you're completely yeah. right. Um, it's to point out that in the UK, like in the US, there is this debate, because everyone, especially the um, liberal or corporate media who's 
still reeling in shock about like how could this possibly have happened how could we not possibly have been able to foresee this um therefore you know tracking that kind of taking their shock and mapping that onto some presumed political reality of well this must be some kind of like foreign interloping interference that explains our inability to like actually talk to people obviously i think that that is just you know inherent to corporate media and there are you know questions around the legitimacy of the referendum but those aren't about interference they go much deeper than that they're about um the um inordinate amount of um uh, big money that was ploughed not you know foreign money like just regular uk domestic aristocrats and plutocrats uh ploughing money into the leave campaign to uh spread lies and i think it's very odd that um to in the context of uh the brexit debate having completely cannibalized the entire uk political terrain right it's completely um impossible to kind of or it feels completely impossible to gain ground on any question of economics of gender justice of racial justice of whatever without confronting the big political question of like what the hell happens in march 2019 when we career off the cliff of brexit in that context it's really odd to um, remember that back in, you know, 1994, I think it was, when um, the UK Independence Party was uh, found, uh, founded, uh, not like just found under a rock, uh, like all that feels like that. Sort of, <laughs> um, uh, but like, you know, I think it's Will Davies, who's a um, writer at, um, and a lecturer at Goldsmiths University, has the line that... Um, only a few, only a handful of people uh, cared about the question of European membership, and all of them were in the Tory cabinet. Um, and so, this is the essential thing that we need to confront when we're talking about the realities of Brexit. Right? Um, to think of it not just as kind of a, a very practical economic problem of things like how will um, leaving the customs union affect our shipping industry or whatever, but also about um, a fascinating historical moment where a, a very technocratic question about um, the particular configuration of Britain's relationship to the rest of global capital um, has become a kind of, you know, a, a just a sort of a symbolic question about, you know, nationhood and British nativism. Most people who voted leave um, have no idea about the structure of the European Union. That is something that has been said time and time again. But what hasn't been said time and time again is that most people who voted remain have no idea about the structure of the European Union. It's a mess of like 15 different, like incredibly maddeningly, complicatedly imbricated um, mini institutions and their offshoots and the trade treaties that they they agree. Um, and the debate was just not about that for 90% of the time. It was a proxy debate on uh, race. Yeah, and I want to get to that point. But you write that uh, a deceptively simple choice, in or out, fractured UK political culture into unlikely alliances, pro-remain leftists from reluctant to distinctly Europhile, found themselves allying with global conglomerates like Goldman Sachs, older generations of socialists and alter globalists, uh, uh, skeptical of EU membership, found themselves aligned with reactionary race baiters like Nigel Farage and uh, uh, (laughs) Boris Johnson. So uh, what does it say about UK politics when apparently all the left could choose from, all that anybody can choose from, 
was Goldman Sachs or Nigel Farage. Is is there a left <laughs> choice for the left? Was there a left choice for the left when it came to Brexit? Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, and I uh, made a video actually at the time. Um, I, um, in uh, Navarra, we had this... Um, uh, we had this like drawing a short straw um, process where we said, okay, who's going to go make a video about how we should vote begrudgingly to remain in the European Union? Because we were trying to answer a question that wasn't being asked, um, but a question that we would eventually have to confront, which was the actual practical question about um, EU membership, where um, I think the question that was being presented uh, to us was a question on, you know, immigration and race and all that kind of thing. So it's hard to say whether or not there was a left um, answer because it's not quite sure. It's not quite clear what the question was because purposefully, and that you know, I think we need to remember that this was, um, uh, it was in many ways a purposeful obfuscation. Um, the uh, many different like symbolic and technocratic questions were bound up together. Um, to force uh, different alliances to fracture. Because I have to remember that this came at a very um, odd time for the UK left in that um, we were, for once, not in the doldrums of despair. Like, there was actually a UK left at the time. And um, this uh, was and continues to be a key a key wedge issue. So I think it's um, when we say that, you know, there was no correct answer for, for the left. We shouldn't be naive about the way in which this was constructed such that a left response was impossible on the terrain laid out by, you know, an alliance between the Tory party and UKIP or the UKIP, as I once heard Noam Chomsky said. And that stuck with me because I think that's absolutely adorable. I'm going to call it that forever. The UKIP. So uh, it, it was Brexit then an intention, a, a project that was intentionally created to split up, to weaken, to undermine any power that the UK left had. I mean, I don't think that um, they had that kind of um, necessary ambition. I think like people who were constructing the refer- people who were interested in the referendum. Um, were interested in the referendum per se. Um, like they, they genuinely uh, wanted a, a proxy referendum on race and a return to like small islandism, taking back control, et cetera, et cetera. I think constructing the question in the way that they did along those very, very simple lines was a convenient way of um, shattering the possibility of any um, like united left uh, response to that. But I think that was, um, you know, it wasn't the main point. It was a it was a way of achieving the the main point. And I think it's very interesting that when we think about, say, um, you know, fascism and the rise of the far right as a, a kind of reaction, kind of defense mechanism of capitalism when it's in crisis, I think we need to be smart about like uh, making the links between um, this. Uh, very, like, to my eyes, openly fascistic, uh, race-baiting, migrant-baiting discourse that fueled Brexit and uh, the trade treaties that have followed it, like, you know, the the proposed uh, US-UK, quote-unquote, free trade deal, which essentially just, uh, like, sells off vast swaths of the UK agricultural countryside to US agribusiness. And, like, that is 
part of the same system. We don't need to say that, you know, there was someone like there was someone incredibly clever um, pulling the strings who um, thought like thought forward and tried to orchestrate all of this stuff. I'm saying like this is part of the same kind of um, ecosystem by which capitalism um, tries to maintain itself. And this is why there are no um, uh, no like comfortable bedfellows within this ecosystem because we're trying to change the, this ecosystem right um there are kind of competitors for power um and you need to like make alliances between different competitors for power within the, within like this political ecosystem but ultimately they're invested in perpetuating like that vision of the world and you're never going to you know be able to comfortably ally with either goldman sachs or nigel farage so I mean, it comes down to the the same conundrum that many leftists have to have to face whenever they um, whenever they step into a polling booth of of any sort. Um, it's the fact that yeah, of course, this kind of um, rep- representative democracy within um, within a system of capitalism will always be about choosing the people you want to fight against. It is not about picking um, your your pals. It's about picking the most convenient uh, the most convenient enemy, um, or the enemy against which you think you can win best. And for me, uh, the <laughs> the enemy that I wanted to uh, that I wanted to fight, or I was most prepared to fight at the time, was the um, you know I was just like I I I will take you know pretty much anything over like a, a really honest fascist i mean obviously this you know um if it had been if remain had won it wouldn't have quelled the problem of the far right in the uk there's a there's a fair argument for saying that it would have um it would have provided a uh, you know it would have provided further fuel for this sense of like thwarted outrage and you know this very lucrative sense of being a martyr and an outsider that you know, Farage and Tommy Robinson and all those kind of cats uh, lean on very heavily and they make a lot of uh, make a lot of actual money off the, that kind of discourse. Um, and also Nigel Farage said himself um, <laughs> that um, on, on the eve of the results, uh, before we actually knew that uh, the Leave vote had won, he was saying things like, you know what, if we don't win, we uh, we know that it's the liberal establishment, the media elites, the you know whatever decadent um, cosmopolitan elites that have rigged the system against us. So he like was fully prepared to to lose, and um, uh, yeah, it's just kind of uh, in that sense. Uh, I think everyone's kind of uh, a little bit uh, shocked to have to re-triangulate around this reality. You write uh, the difficulties have revived uh, critiques leveled at the US, EU by the uh, British left when membership was first up for debate in the 1970s. First, that it was essentially a neoliberal project designed to ease the flow of capital across borders. Second, perhaps more fundamentally, that Europeanness itself is an identity that excludes black and brown people. How does Europeanness exclude all but white people? So when we say talk about Europeanness, um, it's kind of a movable feast. It, um, and European, this will often mean different things depending on who you ask. Um, and um, often for um, uh, people on the liberal left, but also people on the radical left, um, pre, uh, you know, pre-2015 or whenever it was, um, 
uh, Europe was, in comparison to the UK, you know, a much more a much more open society. They had, uh, you know, many uh, Northern European and Southern European states had, uh, say, you know, much better labor practices and things like paid paternity leave and all of these sort of hallmarks of like, uh, quote unquote, well-functioning social democracy. And then you also get this kind of uh, very romantic idea of, you know, cafe culture and bohemianism as the uh, sort of like cultural um, grassroots on which you can like foment further radicalism. Um, and that's all brilliant. But like we kind of forget that um, we, um, when we're diagnosing where that kind of idea of Europeanness, that all of these kind of good things spring from you know that goes back to um like it has deeply deeply colonial roots and like europe defines itself and has pretty much always defined itself in uh, in opposition to the places that it has in, it has invaded and like the invention of you of europe as an idea like as an entity in and of itself rather than just a kind of coincidence of like warring nation states on like like a west hand bit of eurasia is you know comes from the same place as um the evolution of colonialism you i mean it's like it's very kind of um like basic blah sartreanism to be like you know you get a sense of yourself when you encounter an other and like you needed and people needed to construct that sense of like an othered people in order to be able to like colonize them and steal all their stuff and uh, you know slaughter them in their millions um so that kind of history um is like not necessarily contradictory to the sort of one relied upon by um leftists and liberals about like social democracy and like the welfare state and that kind of thing because often the welfare state itself this sort of liberal dream was funded precisely by colonial endeavors um because you know domestic capital did not want to you know pay their way essentially like pay enough taxes in order to fund a domestic uh, welfare state self-sufficiently so they just you know i mean in britain for instance you know our um our nhs um, was, you know, the, the construction of the NHS was um, funded in no small part by the, the wealth of empire. I think these kind of um, contradictions are going to uh, always crop up um, when you're having a discussion about what European identity is. But it's also, it also doesn't surprise me that when we're thinking about who can best and most, I don't know, most efficiently capture and use a political sense of, uh, you know, we are European, this is what means to be European, um, it's the right, you know. Um, they are leaning on it very heavily, using it very cannily um, uh, across, uh, the, uh, across the UK, um, across uh, Northern Europe, and also in the US to talk about, I mean, basically as a, as a very, very loud dog whistle to try and, like, just just about not talk about race but really we were trying to not talk about race by um referencing a uh, essentially like a set of political uh, institutions that were like are the uh, institutions of like global white supremacy and you can see those like very clearly um that the, the operation of that very clearly when you just look at you know Europe's border regimes like it's meant to keep out 
um, people of color who are, you know, trying to find some kind of shelter from, you know, the effects of climate change and war um, that the, that Europe itself has a, has a big hand in creating. So, like, very much the borders of Europe are a way of, like, creating those, um, like, creating whiteness. And what, what I mean by that is, like, creating a, uh, a, like, a privileged tranche of society who has uh, uniquely, um, unique and privileged access to uh, just the ability to survive and the ability to thrive and the ability to prosper. And though that access comes um, by excluding and, uh, you know, by uh, often allowing to die, um, you know, people who are, you know, racialized as not white. So is this white nationalist movement that we are seeing that you describe in Europe, is this going global or is this, again, going back to an earlier response that you had, this isn't about some international conspiracy or plan to go global. This is just the process of doing business in today's world. So I think um, the so I am like very much of the opinion that like you never need a conspiracy where um, simple greed and convenience will do the ex- explanation for you. Um, and I think uh, right-wing groups, around, I mean, far right-wing groups around Europe, both um, in uh, in the parliaments of Europe and on the streets of Europe, are looking to find allies at the moment because, um, you know, they are realizing that they can best share resources and uh, best share, you know, practices um, when they are together, you know, like it's uh, doing the practice of internationalist solidarity like way better than the left in some instances um but you know it just happens to be this like you know congress of the damned but so what they're doing here is um you're seeing like different uh right-wing groups um across europe uh you know who ostensibly um will talk to uh you know, German pride or Austrian pride or Italian pride in this very nativist, rooted, blood and soil, nationalistic way. But actually, when you look where their um, funding comes from and where their friends lie, um, that's very much an internationalist project. And I think that's, um, uh, you know, that's by no no coincidence, because... um, People have recognized, right? People have recognized that, like, they need allies wherever, wherever they, um, like, wherever they can find them. And also, and in order to sort of paint that, in order to make that a, like a, a political platform that will like inspire people to get involved, you don't just need a like, oh, you know, we're, I guess the AFD will link up with, you know, um, Matteo Salvini's um, Northern League in Italy uh, because I guess it's just convenient. Like that's not inspiring. Uh, what you need is some kind of ideological framework to contain those alliances and to get people on board. And that framework is precisely uh, Europeanness. And like this is why Europeanness is very very closely related to the idea of the West in your Samuel Huntington clash of civilizations way. It's a way of capturing um, what is meant by like the cultural, um, uh, the sort of the best interpretation or the most 
favourable interpretation of the cultural effects of the institutions of um, global white supremacy in uh, countries that, you know, happened to have historically been the colonising ones. Eleanor, the article that you had in in these times is just fascinating. Steve Bannon's European dream. Europe used to serve as a utopian vision for the left and a punching bag for the right. Now it's reversing. You can find that at In These Times magazine. You can find it at our website. Uh, You can also find it at uh, Eleanor's own website, which is, or you can follow Eleanor on Twitter, sorry, at Eleanor K. Penny. You can find it at her writing at EleanorPenny.com. And you should listen to her poetry podcast, Bedtime Stories for the End of the World, which you can find at endoftheworldpodcast.com. This is a fascinating article. I've got one last question for you, and it's our question from hell. We do this for all of our guests. It's the question we <laughs> oh, hate to I ask. I warned about this, Chuck. This is, this is truly devilish. Uh, the question uh, we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And this is about <laughs> an article from a year ago. Last year, right after the violence <sighs> at Charlottesville, the Independent quoted Noam Chomsky saying of Antifa, when confrontation shifts the arena of violence, it's the toughest and most brutal who win. And we know who that is. That's quite a part for from the opportunity cost, the loss of the opportunity for education, organizing, and serious and constructive activism. The Independent then quoted you, saying in response, Chomsky treats the battle against fascism as a battle for moral purity that can be won when the left remain respectful, polite, and deferent, but fascists have no interest in winning that battle. They don't care about respecting free speech or the right to a fair trial. They've openly declared their murderous intent towards people of color and other undesirables, and they'll pursue that goal by any means necessary. In this context, physical resistance is a duty, an act of self-defense, not an unsightly outpost of leftist moral decline. Now that we are a year on from Charlottesville... (laughs) Did Antifa's actions and reactions at Charlottesville prove to be, as Chomsky also said, a major gift to the right? Did the fascists benefit from Antifa's reaction to the Nazis at Charlottesville? Oh, I can't believe you're making me you're making me fight with Noam. <laughs> but, um, hey, it was better than the other question was going to be. It's like nine thirty in the morning. Right. Okay. But, my other question was going to be, uh, should we just ignore everything Noam Chomsky says or ever did now that he said this? So uh, let's just stick with this one. <laughs> yeah, let's just stick with that. Um, so I, I, you know, I stand by what I said. I think um, that um, that physical self-defense, and it is self-defense because fascists, when they, um, when they are assemble and are allowed to assemble uh, regularly, they are, they are a physical threat and they're also um, able to dominate the social sphere and therefore, you know, get more recruits and just um, have the social institutions necessary to make their murderous politics the norm. So I think in that basic sense, you know, we have the legal precedence for this. You know, if someone is about to punch you, you are allowed to defend yourself within reason. Um, and I think, you know, a, a re- <laughs> we need to have a discussion about like what as the left within about what within reason means. Right. But there's also um, I would um, whilst, you know, I think uh, there's been a kind of fetishization of um, the of punching Pepe as like the one and only acceptable anti-fascist tactic. But really, like combating anti-combating fascism is about um, 
using all of the tools we have because fascists don't just mobilize by um, uh, gathering together in the streets. They mobilize by, you know, winning hearts and minds. They, uh, Christ, they set up food banks. They elect politicians. And we really need to be thinking about this as a whole package of ideas um, and a whole package of ideas that makes the conditions for fermenting further fascism impossible. And that's really a more, much more ambitious project about changing the world. But that's precisely why Rosa Luxemburg said we can either have socialism or we can have barbarism. Because if we have socialism, um, the the turn towards barbarism is just a much less enticing offer for the vast majority of people because, you know, they have to, you know, sacrifice so much of their social solidarity and so much of themselves along the way in order to, you know, meet this devil's bargain offered by the far right. Our guest this morning has been Eleanor Penny. She is a writer, essayist, editor, poet, and broadcaster. Definitely check out her podcast again at the endoftheworldpodcast.com. Thank you so much for being on our show, Eleanor, and I am going to be annoying you in the future to have you come back on the show. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I really appreciate it. Pleasure and privilege, Chuck. Take care. Take care. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I ask were written while I was incredibly high. This is hell. Don't worry. This too shall pass. All we have to do is wait out this neo-Nazi rise of the far right that's taking place all over the world. Let's just wait for this moment to pass and things will get back to the normal, perfect peace we were enjoying until Trump was elected. At least that's what defenders of liberalism's status quo wants you to believe. The problem is that all the crises that liberalism is facing today have been around for a lot longer than Trump. We'll discover how liberalism is at fault for the rise of the far right when we are joined by writer of politics, culture, sports, and technology, Aaron Timms, who posted the Baffler article, This is not a blip. What's wrong with what liberals say is wrong with the world. It's time for some listener feedback. Kim A. writes to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com. Dear Chuck, I listen to your station online. I just recently became up to date with your shows. The voter suppression interview with Carol Anderson is incredible. This is possibly the very most important interview that you have ever ever produced. As a complimentary to Carol Anderson's interview, I suggest that you interview Jacob Urowski, professor of philosophy at Yale University. His most recent book is How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us Versus Them. He states that fascism is in fact a tactic. He evaluates these tactics through history, including the history of racism in the U.S. Thanks a million, Kim A. You're more than welcome, a million Kim and everyone should go back and listen to both our interviews with Carol Anderson, our most recent with her on the history of Southern states, black voter suppression, and our earlier talk with her on white rage, uh, backlash against any civil rights victory African Americans have ever experienced. That interview is from December of 2016, was, and uh, the book, White Rage, that she did was voted as one of uh, our favorite books for 2016 that we featured here on This Is Hell. So yeah, definitely go back and listen to our interviews of Carol Anderson. You can find them both at thisishell.com. But the most recent one on voter suppression of African Americans is stunning. Asia sent an email after hearing that we are looking for more board ops, board operators here on This Is Hell as we expand to more regular broadcasting. Hello! I'm writing in regards to last week's broadcast requesting aid in the expansion of the This Is Hell empire. Thank you for capitalizing empire. I live in Chicago and would love to be able to contribute in some way as a board operator or producer's assistant. I've been listening to This Is Hell for a little over a year, but that time 
Uh, it has greatly shaped my worldview, helped me develop a more holistic understanding of how various issues intersect and overlap, and serve to further fuel my interests in history, U.S. foreign policy, and generally gathering a more cohesive understanding of the world in hopes of at some point helping make it a little bit better. So uh, she goes on to say, Asia goes on to say that they would that uh, they'd like to work on our show. I'd like to work for or otherwise volunteer any of my time on something that I find generally meaningful. And media based in Chicago is especially exciting to me. I've attached my resume and so forth. So she signs sincerely, Asia. We've contacted Asia, and we'll be bringing her into the to check out the studio and start her training. And if you want to volunteer on This Is Hell, we can use your help as well. Email us at chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com as we expand our broadcasting to more days throughout the week. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadcast radio, this is hell. This moment is not merely a moment. This is not just a blip. We can't just wait and all these crises we face will simply go away. Except that's what liberalism wants us to believe, to not consider that we may be facing a more systemic and permanent failure. Here to help us understand why it's all liberalism's fault, live from Brooklyn, writer of politics, culture, sport, and technology, Aaron Timms posted the Baffler article, This is not a blip. What's wrong with what liberals say is wrong with the world. Welcome to This is Hell, Aaron. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you, can, you can follow Aaron on Twitter at Aaron Timms. That's with two M's. And you can find out more about Aaron at AaronTimms.xyz. And I'm going to lead, read a little bit of an excerpt here so people will understand the context of our discussion. You quote David Lipton, sure. the second in command at the International Monetary Fund, saying on uh, current challenges to multilateralism, times have changed. We live in an era of doubts and questions about the global order. We are in a true recession of trust, but trust can be rebuilt. We can restore trust in institutions and larger purposes if we set out to regain the sense that something concrete can be achieved by working together. But to you, as you write, something about Lipton's words stuck with me since this moment is not just it uh, sorry since this moment is just a moment as lipton implied it's fair to assume that the conditions that have brought it into being are temporary a deviation from a norm that we can all be assured will return as the dominant theme of human endeavor for lipton as for many others in the political and policy establishment the way out of this recession is by finding the way back path back to the ancien regime. The way that multilateralists regain public trust in multilateralism is to continue being multilateralists. The answer to bad institutions is institutions. The woes besetting the global liberal order call not for less, but more of the global liberal order. We have diagnosed the disease and its cure apparently will be its cause. Now, last week, we were talking with Adam Kotzko, author of Neoliberalism's Demons, and Adam points to the self-legitimating nature of neoliberalism. So that brings me to a larger point here. Do you see a similar form of self-legitimation within liberalism as well? Or is that simply a, a common component in all political ideologies, that they are all, to some extent, self-legitimating? They, they, they probably, they probably are. I mean, it's it's this whole battle over um, defining the rules of the game and making sure that any deviation from the rules of the game 
um, is corrected by adhering to those rules. And I think that that's really what came across in that speech that David Lipton gave. And David Lipton is not sort of this well-known figure, as I say in the piece. He's, he's pretty obscure, but he's he's exactly the kind of um, you know faceless, not necessarily faceless, but but obscure technocrat um, who thrives in these types of institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, you know, the institutions of the EU, the institutions, the agencies of the U.S. government, um, even even places like uh, the Supreme Court. I mean, we we sort of not that well acquainted with the people who make their way into these institutions. But when they do come out, um, you get interventions like like his, which is all about um, insisting on the rules of the game and not uh, questioning the, the premises and, and the preconceptions that underlie those rules. Um, and so, so yeah, it is, it is self-legitimating in that sense, in the sense that, you know, you, you can't question the underlying system. All you can do is reinforce the rules um, as found. And that's, that's sort of the automatic response you get to any moment of crisis is just to say, well, this is this is a moment. This is an aberration. This is a parenthesis. This is exceptional. It's unprecedented. It's extraordinary. It is words used over and over again by liberals to describe the the, the sort of uh, the emergence of populism broadly understood. Um, but because it's so kind of extraordinary, because it's so unprecedented, because it's so exceptional, um, you know, we we have to respond to this exception. Um, to the rules of the game by uh, enforcing and obeying um, and observing those rules and sort of essentially reinforcing their legitimacy. Um, so, yeah, so there, there is basically this, this question of legitimacy that's at the core of all of this. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen it again uh, this week where <laughs> we've sort of gone from a week ago thinking that the FBI was going to be the liberal thought, you know, the FBI is going to be a panacea to... To all these problems with this um, horrible nominee to, to the Supreme Court, but of course the institutions are um, tight, sort of hand-tied and, and captured, um, and can't be relied on to um, get us beyond the institutions. I mean, the, the response, the, literally, the response to a bad institutional choice, a bad nominee on the Supreme Court was to reinforce the primacy of institutions. <laughs> That's what liberals thought was going to get us out of this mess. Um, but, of course, it's probably only made things worse. You write that Emmanuel Macron told an audience of world leaders earlier this year that we are living through, quote, a moment where trust is shaken. We're right. being reassured that this moment is not permanent. But how long mm. has this moment of crisis, in your opinion, been going on? How long has this blip been going on? Well, in, in the eyes of the Liberals, it's kind of, you know, uh, a Brexit and big um, events that, in their eyes, capture what's sort of abhorrent to them. It's kind of like their, their taste is offended by what's going on. Um, but, you know, the blip really is, is not a blip, as I say in the piece. In fact, that's the title of the piece. This is not a blip. Um, I say it's, it's a sort of long-term... Uh, function of the way that liberalism has evolved over the course of decades. And it's really kind of a, a, a post-war phenomenon. I mean, when you think about the sort of the origins of neoliberalism with the, um, with the Mont Pelerin Society and, and places like that, um, kind of sort of encasing the market, to, to use the term that, um, that Quinn Slobodian uses in, in his excellent new book, um, encasing the market and protecting it from 
um, the sort of unruly forces of democracy. And and so from that, we kind of got an evolution um, and an institutionalization of this approach um, to the market and to, to sort of liberalism generally. Um, and it kind of accelerated through the through the 70s and the 80s with financialization and a number of uh, bad policy choices that were made, again, to kind of protect the market from uh, the difficult demands of the people. And, you know, what we've seen over the last few years with these with these um, events, these incidents that are so um, repellent to liberals, you know, Brexit, Trump, you know, the rise of, of populism very broadly understood and, and, and sort of poorly defined um, in Europe and Asia and elsewhere, um, is is kind of the revenge of the people. It's, it's a reassertion of the primacy of democracy, this kind of coupling between liberalism and democracy. So, I mean, when, when did it start? It started a long time ago. <laughs> the problem is not you know, the problem is not Donald Trump. The problem is not Brexit. The problem is not, you know, Duterte in, in, in the Philippines. The problem is this kind of this kind of system that we're saddled with and the very kind of uh, compromised marriage between um, liberalism, which doesn't want to have to deal with, with people and their real concerns and worries, and, and democracy, which is obviously the, the pressure valve that allows them to, to express those um, worries and, and concerns. So yeah, so so it's so it's it's very much a long-term process. I think you know the all the, the the blip broadly understood. It's not a blip; it's a process. It's a feature of the system, not a bug. Um, but liberals try to present it as a as a bug, and use that as the basis on which to say, well, you know, you know what, um, this is just a moment that's going to pass. This is not, you know, it's it's. It's difficult, but it's like having a cold. You just have to kind of ride it out, and then um, we'll get back to business as usual, and we'll go back to whatever there was before before Trump came to power. Which, you know, in the case of the U.S., is sort of rampant financialization of the economy, and um, and um, you know, all sorts of other all sorts of other bad things. Um, so, so yeah, it's 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 a long term process. I think I think the fundamental point of, of the piece um, and the point that I was trying to make was that. Um, you know, liberals misdiagnose a broken system as, you know, just a, a sort of momentary bug. So uh, I want to get to to why they misdiagnose it, because as you write, uh, sociologist Greta R. Krippner has shown financialization of the U.S. economy was the policymakers' response to the distributional conflicts triggered by inflation in the late 1960s and 1970s. Deregulation was right. a way of letting the market rather than government decide how to distribute capital among competing actors. And you also talk about how credit was opened up and how debt fueled the uh, uh, bounce back of the economy after the 60s and 70s. So how much right. is our refusal to recognize that this is more than a blip? How much is that refusal based on our unwillingness on both Democrats and Republicans to uh, hold President Reagan and President Clinton accountable because the Republicans believe in the myth of Reagan's economic policy prowess and Democrats believe in the same myth about Clinton, that we refuse to reconsider financialization and market deregulation because both sides politically embraced it and refused to admit that their hero made a horrible mistake, which has led to the rise of the far right. How much is our unwillingness to understand that this is more than a blip? Is our unwillingness to undeify, if you will, Reagan and Clinton? Uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's a really big component of it. And even, frankly, President uh, Carter, 
because uh, I mean a lot of this started in the uh, in in the late seventies. Exactly. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, no, that's that's a, that's a, a huge component of things. It's just this blindness to history and a, an unwillingness to go back and and re-examine exactly what happened. I mean, um, the, the the idea of the Reagan years as a golden era. Um, and for Democrats, the idea of, of Clinton as this era of sort of the Clinton years as this era of unrivaled prosperity, where liberal democracy was spreading throughout the world, the end of history, blah blah blah. Even though that that phrase is obviously misunderstood in the way that Sukiyama um, meant it originally, slightly different from from the way that people applied in these types of conversations. I mean, it's, it, but, but you're totally right. I mean, this, this idea that the the 80s and the 90s were were great. You know, we we collectively the West defeated communism. Um, I always have to add that little caveat in because obviously I'm, I'm Australian, but I've lived in the US for, for quite a while now. Um, you know, we defeated communism. We, uh, you know, the, the economy was growing, broadly speaking. Um, thing, things were good. You know, the president was jogging. Everyone was happy kind of thing. Uh, the only thing we had to worry about was, uh, was you know, a sex scandal. That was kind of the thing that consumed Washington in the late, in the late 90s. Um, yeah, I mean, this kind of, uh, this blindness to to what actually happened and uh, a failure to sort of see um, the problems that we're confronting today as as being fundamentally anchored in the choices that were made um, on on both sides of politics in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. I, th- I think is a huge component of things, and that's why a lot of these histories that are that are out at the moment, um, like the Quinn Slobodian book. Um, even the, the Samuel Moyne book, I see Samuel Moyne had a really interesting piece in the in the Boston Review this morning about um, the juristocracy and how um, our our response, you know, progressives or people on the left, if you like, um, to the Kavanaugh nomination um, should not be to kind of try and stack the court again. It should be to actually examine the, the court's position um, in the governmental architecture of the country and to sort of also re-examine the cult of, of constitutionalism. Um, so, I mean, that, that's basically a variant on, on the argument that you're suggesting, which is that we need to be um, much better historians. You know, we need to think much more carefully about the origins of these things. And that's, that's again, the point that I try to make in the piece, is that, you know, the, the etiology of, of the blip that liberals talk about, you know, in, in other words, the examination of the causes of the blip is is usually really, yeah, in fact, always really superficial. They, they don't look, you know, blip thinkers, as they call them, liberals who are kind of, you know, furrow, furrow, have a sort of furrowed brow about the rise of populism, um, don't like to look back very far when they're thinking about what the causes of, of, of this moment, this blip, as they call it, um, actually are. Um, and, and so what, what I argue for is, is a much more searching examination of those causes. I mean, they, they sort of go back and say, ah, oh, you know, people, well, there was a financial crisis. That's about as far back as they go. A, the financial crisis happened, and wow, that was really bad, and, and, and people got really pissed off, and um, you know, then we got Trump kind of thing. That's, that's basically um, as, as deep as the, the historiography of, of the blip goes, if you like. Um, but, of course, you know, there were there were there were policy choices that were made, um, you know, in the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s, which which led to the crisis. Um, and you have to think a, a lot more carefully about what those choices were and what could have been done differently 
um, to avoid that kind of situation. And and it's also, I think, much more comprehensive than that. At the, at the end of, of the piece, um, which I hope people will be inspired to go and read by this conversation, not totally put off, um, I, I try to say, well, you know, we have to think much more carefully about... Um, you know, the, the, the system broadly understood um, and, and whether this system is in any way equipped to get us out of this situation. And I personally don't, don't think it is. Now, when I get to this point of liberalism and reinforcing the status quo, because I want to make sure that people aren't having this confusion about what liberalism is because the different definitions that it has in global politics as opposed to here in the U.S. You write, the situation today is not the parenthesis of progress, but its product. And this is what is truly uh, deranging about blip thinking. By mistaking entropy for a fleeting moment of collective madness, it ensures the political establishment's comfort in doing nothing to address the real problems besetting the world today. It is a call for only the most superficial form of action, which is to say an excuse for inaction, which brings us to an article Mm. in last week's Washington Post, co-written by a past guest on our show, Chris Mooney, that reports deep in a 500-page environmental impact statement published in August, the Trump administration made a startling assumption. On its current course, the planet will warm a disastrous 7 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. A rise of 7 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 4 degrees Celsius, compared with pre-industrial levels, would be catastrophic. According to scientists, many coral reefs would dissolve in increasingly acidic oceans. Parts of Manhattan and Miami would be underwater without costly coastal defenses. Extreme heat waves would routinely smother large parts of the planet. The world would have to make deep cuts in carbon emissions to avoid this drastic warming, the analysis states. And quoting the statement, that would require substantial increases in technology, innovation, and and adoption compared to today's levels and would require the economy and the vehicle fleet to move away from the use of fossil fuels, which is not currently technologically feasible or economically feasible. Is Trump and his environmental policy of not doing anything because nothing can be done, can be done, it's already too late. Is that a sign that he is more than anything a supporter of the liberal status quo? Uh, yeah, well, to, to a large degree, although, of course, he wouldn't, he wouldn't cast it in those terms. Um, but, yeah, he's, he's you know, when, when I say liberalism, I'm, I'm using it in the, in the sort of classical political philosophy sense of the term rather than um, kind of liberals uh, in, you know, people who are to the left of centre generally or, you know, people who, um, <clears throat> who don't like Brett Kavanaugh. Um, so I, I think, you know, he is... Obviously, Trump is is a function of the the, the liberal order, you know, um, and and that's that's sort of a point that I guess hovers over over the top of the piece, um, and and there is no, you know, he's he's sort of uh, he he's basically a, a, a sort of a worse dressed version of the liberal of the the blip thinker, if you like, as I, as I call them in in my piece. Um, he arrives at a lot of the same policy outcomes that they do. Um, it's just that he doesn't he doesn't dress it up as nicely, and he's not as well spoken, and and he's not as palatable, if you like, to to, to people's taste, um, broadly understood. Um, so yeah, he he you know did this this idea that you know well we can't do anything about the environment, um, you know we they don't want to do anything about the environment, of course, um, is. Uh, sort of of a piece. It's not quite the same as as 
as blip thinking, but it's definitely of a piece with uh, with the way that liberals respond to this moment. Um, of course, the liberal will want to say, well, you know, climate change is bad. Um, we should do something about it, and that's that's a position. Um, I think I think well, I personally agree with, of course. Um, but you know, the the sort of institutional machinery that you have to grind through to actually get stuff done is what the uh, the liberal will insist on um, as as a response to this moment of crisis. So the response to climate change is to sort of seek change through institutions rather than examining um, at a deeper level. Um, what it is that has forced the climate uh, to change and has, has brought us into this year of um, of anthropogenic climate change. Um, it, whereas Trump's response is, you know, well, I, I really only care about the the lobby groups that I that I answer to or don't even answer to, but probably dictate to. And and as we all know, Trump doesn't really care about anything other than himself. Um, so his response would just be, well, I, I don't really care, and you know, I'm just going to not do anything about it to, to own the libs. But ultimately, they're kind of probably going to get to the to the same um, endpoint, which is to do not very much and to sort of you know um, kind of wash their hands of the whole thing and say, well, it's it's all just a bit too hard. I mean, this is really difficult, but this is just the world as it is, and uh, this stuff is happening, and you know, um, it's sad, but uh, but there you go. <laughs> One last question for you. We've been speaking with Aaron Timms. You can find all of Aaron's writing at AaronTimms.xyz. We've been talking to him about his Baffler uh, piece. This is not a blip. One last question for you, and I want to apologize, Aaron, because we only have a couple of minutes for you to answer this. Uh, But our final question for every one of our guests is the question, we call it the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write about how there is this disconnect between well, democracy and capitalism, that we have this idea of giving all people equal opportunity to become rich, to get all the things that they want, equality uh, of wealth, of opportunity, of self-worth. But capitalism is based on competition amongst individuals against each other, not everybody having the, having wealth. It's not about raising all boats. It's about raising one boat way up high and a whole bunch of boats barely sinking and then the other ones at the bottom of the ocean. So to you, what explains this disconnect between our understanding of democracy being something that is about opportunity for all and then employing an economic system that is not about employing opportunity for all? Um, what, what, explains, what explains the disconnect? What explains why we, make, why we have that disconnect here in the United States? Um, I, I, think it's, I, I think it's ignorance is probably the most important thing because it's ignorance about what what capitalism actually is and, and what it's designed to achieve. Um, so if we were a bit more transparent, a bit more honest with ourselves about uh, what this system is and what it's designed to produce and what its origins are um, and how it evolves, then we would come to a much more um, honest and, and frank and helpful appreciation of the situation that we're in. Um, and we would see that, you know, actually, maybe this isn't the system that we should uh, that, that we should be functioning under, and and we should think about a different um, vision of economic and civic life, and and a different version of the of, of human potential and the ways to to unlock it and and allow it to flourish.
Well, that seems simple enough. Aaron, I really appreciate <laughs> I really appreciate you being on our show this week. You can find all of Aaron's writing at AaronTims.xyz and his article, This Is Not a Blip, is at The Baffler, and you should definitely read that. Thank you so much for being on our show, Aaron, and Thank I you. will again be bugging you in the future to have you back on the show. Excellent. Thank you. Appreciate Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, This Is Hell. Join us for This Is Hell Office Hours that happens every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Drop by This Is Hell Office Hours Wednesday, 6 to 9 p.m. Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. I'll give you some free This Is Hell subvertising stickers. You might even get a free book. Uh, I want to thank all the people who did support This Is Hell this week. Thanks this week goes out to Brett and John, and thanks to Gidden and Michael. We each wanted a new This Is Hell stainless steel coffee mug and the new completely redesigned This Is Hell t-shirt. You can find out more by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. I also want to thank everybody who signed up for the Patreon podcast. Patreon podcast exclusively at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm going to have to hold off on this week's Hangover Cure and save that for you for next week. And again, next week we have no idea what's going to be happening on the show. All we know is it's going to be one hour long and we're going to be trying a little bit of a different format here on these 60-minute shows. I want to thank Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. Thanks to Eleanor Penny for being on today as well as Aaron Timms. The best way for you to get over all of the problems that we have introduced to you on this week's show is to sit down in the lotus position, turn your palms towards the sky, focus on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and say the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon. demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.